Not too long ago, if you wanted to support this NPR station, you had to mail in a check. But today, you can donate to public radio with a few clicks online. Here's the website. Please take a moment to go to wjffradio.org and make a contribution of any amount. If you can give $10, $15, $20 a month or more, consider signing up to be a sound supporter and make sure Radio Catskill has your constant support. Go to wjffradio.org. Thanks. And cloudy tonight, chance of rain, mainly on the early end, um, overnight low down to 39, cloudy early tomorrow, sun coming out later, and unseasonably warm weather with a high near 60 for tomorrow. This is Radio Catskill. Welcome to Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. I'll bring you all kinds of stories from all kinds of people. Whether it's a live public conversation and we're speaking from the kitchen table of my 1965 Beeline travel trailer, from the studios or on the streets, please sit back and enjoy the conversation right here this time every week. I'm really excited to be speaking with Andrea Reynosa. Andrea is an artist. She has a studio, practice, land art, and she also engages with social and civic practices. She established Sky Dog Farm, which she called a lifestyle experiment. She also curated flow events, which I was a part of with my Trailer Talk project. And she created the Sky Dog Supper Club, which is connected to the First Supper project, which she is at present engaged with in New Mexico. I'm also speaking with Sandra Donner, who is an architect with a focus on landscape design, also urban design and planning. They are collaborating with community members in New Mexico on a kind of collective visioning project called the First Supper Project. I want to invite everyone to this virtual kitchen table of trailer talk. Please imagine you are joining us. You are sitting at the table with us for this conversation. Hi, I'm Andrea Reynosa. I'm an artist, activist, sculptor, and um, farmer that lives in uh, Calicoon, New York. And um, I'm actually kind of indefinitely in residence here in New Mexico working on the First Supper Project. Hello, my name is Sandra Donner. I'm an architect in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And for the last 15 years, um, I have been running landscape design firms, dealing with all sorts of different issues um, with water and usage and sustainability. Um, and we're really just trying to do the best we can to make everything, you know, make, make it just a better place to live and keep it healthy. I'm so happy to be having this conversation with you, Andrea and Sandra. Sabrina, it's nice to see you. Nice to be here with everybody at the kitchen table. And, um, you know, going back to the Sky Dog Supper Clubs, it's nice to be able to um, revisit that um, with you particularly, because I do remember Trailer Talk being engaged. And that was so helpful as we that was back in 2011, believe it or not, 2010, Mm -hmm. 2011. And um, just for some background to everybody that may not have been part of that, um, that especially in the River Valley, there's so many newcomers. It's exciting. Um, We're experiencing like a renaissance right now. But we started doing those as a way to inform people of uh, the detriment of fracking. At at that time, um, they were starting to uh, divide up the roads and it looked like a a done deal. Um, So uh, we used kind of a food gatherings as a way to educate the public and bring people to the table, people that might not have wanted to hear what we had to say but kept it really uh, general. So everyone was welcome and we had the monthly and it led into our uh, zoning rewrite um, where we successfully banned fracking on the municipal level through um, exercising our home rule authority. And um, that ended up going viral with uh, David and Helen Slotsky throughout the state of New York. Um, And it led to the statewide ban in 2014 uh, that Cuomo implemented but it, it was a, a dogfight, you know. So the yes. food gatherings were a really great way to um, just kind of bring people together and break bread and talk about the, uh, the devastation that uh, this extractive industry would have created. 
uh, not just to our water resources, but to our, our land and our, and our people. And Andrea, as you have shared, your art practice, which is very much an interdisciplinary one, also deals with lifestyle experiments. So you were a council woman in upstate New York. You were a grants writer. And this is all part of this, the strategies of art that you use. And I want to talk about that. And also, Sandra, Sandra Donner, you are an architect and you use landscape design and urban planning in your work. So I'm interested in this collaboration. And how did you meet each other to begin this work? And let me add, we are speaking to you both from New Mexico. So um, this is Sandra. And I, um, I actually, I went to a lecture um, about seven years ago, I think it was in I believe it was in February, if I yeah, remember correctly. Yeah, the end of February. And um, it was at the Santa Fe Art Institute. And um, I had come to listen. It was a like a food justice residency, I mm-hmm. believe. And um, really enjoyed the lecture. Several people spoke. Um, but after um, Andrea spoke, what was really funny was I recognized one of the names in her, like, you know, her end of, end of lecture, um, thank yous. And it was, um, Bone, Bone Levine is the Mm -hmm. name of the, um, of the architecture firm in New York city. And Kevin Bone had actually been my professor in the late nineties. So, uh, so that's, so I, I, it started up a conversation. I mean, that was really, I was interested in what she was doing. I thought it was really, you know, terrific, but, um, you know, sometimes it's really great when you have a reason to talk to someone. So <laughs> that was, uh, that was really, that was the beginning, just that one connection of, you know, knowing the same person in New York City. Thank you so much, Sandra. And uh, Andrea, at that time, you were beginning your first suppers project, I believe. Yeah. This is a project that you've been working on over the past seven years. So I'm just wondering if you can talk to us, what, what are these first suppers? And, and then where are you right now with that? I know you mentioned to me Principal Antonio Trujillo, who is in New Mexico as well, and you've been working at the school. So what is this project? And if you could tie it in, and Sandra, jump in too, because you're a part of this project, and it really is a collaboration, um, but how this connects also to your own identities. Let's, let's go right there. This is Andrea speaking, just (laughs) we're on a Zoom meeting, so I can can forget. Um, Speaking of identities. Um, So let me just back up to the beginning and the origination of the food justice residency and how it led into First Supper. Um, I flew out um, in 2014. It was right after I did the um, John Street Pastor down for the food um, shed exhibition in the Brooklyn Bridge Park. Um, and then that just kind of segued into my food justice investigations with the Santa Fe Art Institute. I went out to do some ground investigations. I was really interested in pre-contact agricultural practices um, and technologies near Belen, where my family lineage goes back 400 years. So I picked the tribes that I thought we probably would have been in you know, contact with way back um, then. And um, interacted with, and that was Akama Laguna. But the, I was particularly interested in waffle gardens, which is this dry farming technique that is um, endemic to the um, Pueblo Indians, especially in Hopi, Zuni, and Akama. And um, so I thought, well, where would I start looking for waffle gardens once I got out there? <laughs> and I thought, well, the Sky City Akama Cultural Center. So um, I just called them, made sure they were open. And I just made a beeline. I had only been in New Mexico from New York for about maybe nine hours, you know, kind of bleary eyed headed towards um, the middle of nowhere, the middle of nowhere. (laughs) It's on the way to Chaco Canyon, which most a lot of people know where that is. Thank God. So um, so I went there and lo and behold, there was a waffle garden right in front of the cultural center. And I thought, gosh, that's how fortuitous, (laughs) you know, so some very nice gentleman came out and told me, um, that they hadn't built the uh, waffle garden, but that these kids at this mission school with um, a Laguna uh, farmer uh, named Dwight, is it McCracken? I think so. Yeah, yeah. McCracken 
um, had built that with traditional methods. And, I'm, and But he was like, but you need to meet the principal, Antonio Trujillo, at the St. Joseph's Mission School in San Fidel. And then he just pointed in the, the direction over like lava flows and God knows what, you know, out in the <laughs> desert. And I'm like, okay, great. You know, I figure out how to get to San. And this is before I had GPS and a, a smartphone and all that. Um, <laughs> And um, so I just, you know, old school, ask people if I didn't know, pull over on the side of the road and ask people where things are kind of thing. And eventually I found San Fidel. I found the school and um, it was amazing. It's an amazing Adobe um, complex with a convent and all these outbuildings and just incredible landscape out there with wild ponies roaming around. And I'm like, oh, my God, I've arrived, you know. And I walked in, um, he was in his office. I mean, everything just flowed, you know. Um, I don't even think it was noon yet. And that was my first full day in New Mexico. And then I sat in his office and he had been working on a USDA grant, uh, Farm to School. And that was really his vision and um, for what he wanted to do to deal with kind of the food and um, nutrition issues on the reservations, particularly diabetes and heart disease. So um, because of a lot of the U.S. rations that are, you know, process, processed food and white flour and sugar and, and whatnot. So uh, that totally got my attention outside of even the waffle gardens. And they had a nice little garden that they were um, trying to cultivate to bring food from the garden to the cafeteria. But that was just in the beginning stages seven years ago. Yeah, it was um, tiny back then. Yeah. No, I mean, they've come a long way. So anyways, he gave me the grant that they had just gotten rejected for from the USDA. And so I immediately started looking at the grant and I just looked at him. I was so enthusiastic about everything going on there. And I said, can I use this proposal as my kind of beginnings for my food justice residency Mm. at the Santa Fe Art Institute? And he said, yes. And he let me keep the grant. I'm like totally blown away at this point. And I'm pinching myself. And then I'm heading up to Santa Fe after that to meet with Sanjay, who was the executive director at the time. And then I I think I was an hour and a half later, I'm like in his office in Santa Fe, showing him the USDA grant. And I'm giving him like within just, it seemed like light years, you know, um, everything just developed so quickly. And uh, that's when you really know that you're on the right track, you know, on any idea or concept. And um, before I knew it, you know, I was just starting to do deep dive investigations at that specific site at the school and employing traditional techniques, dealing with food shed issues, dealing with food sovereignty issues. And then when I was in full residency about six months later, then I just hit the ground running and we started developing the first supper concept. Um, I did a lot of kind of um, designed by committee work that Antonio put together a nice little committee. We applied for an Art Place America grant that they almost got. We were in second place for $3 million at the end of this. It was incredible. You know, the first year Zuni got it, um, but we were runners up. So it really got everybody enthusiastic about what's possible, you know? So that gives you the background of where First Supper came from. Um, And then we had a food gathering. um, I think it was March of 2015. That was the first one. March of 2015 was the first supper. And that's the first supper. Yeah. um, Food gathering. Right. And then the takeaways from that that got even deeper were that the uranium mining in the area had disrupted um, their food growing and agricultural traditions because the men at Acoma Laguna were the farmers. And so for 50 years, um, they were in the uranium mines and they had lost a lot of their farming traditions and um, their their ability to feed themselves, you know. So Andrea, how does what you just mentioned about the uranium mining in the location where you've been been doing this project in New Mexico, how does that connect to the issues that we faced in the Catskills in New York State around fracking, so around water and land use? And Sandra, feel free also to jump in to this conversation because I know you and Andrea have been working together on the First Suppers project in New Mexico. So anywhere that you want to add anything, you're most welcome to do so. Well, one of the things that that I I kind of wanted to backtrack a little bit too is, um, you know, the reason reason I kind of came into this was um, I was running a landscape architecture firm at the time. I still am, but it's a smaller one just with me and um, actually 
projects like this is one of the reasons that I actually went off on my own. Um, I really wanted to have the flexibility to be, you know, to be able to really kind of help um, and not just, uh, you know, not just work for kind of a wealthier, you know, kind of one, which, which is great. Trust me, it keeps me going and it allows me to do other things as well. But I think that, you know, one of the things that's really important about this area and really about New Mexico is the way that the indigenous people have really used the water um, and grown things over the past and how we can really learn from that. So it's a lot about, you know, it's a lot about food justice and getting people the food that they need and, and, um, and just helping out a really amazing, amazing man. Um, Antonio Trujillo is an incredible human being. Um, but it's also about, you know, learning, learning from the past and helping the people of Laguna and Acoma. And, and even the, you know, this is a big area, of, you know, kind of white ranchers that have been there for hundreds of years. So you have, you know, you have a Hispanic community, you have a Native American community, and then you have, you know, this kind of white ranching community that have all been there for, you know, considerable period of time, obviously some much longer than others, but, but it's really, really important, you know, to, to try and reach out to these communities and help them kind of relearn where they came from and why things worked and how things worked. And the Waffle Garden is a, you know, it's just one way that, um, you know, that people, you know, were able to take small amounts of water and distribute it. Um, it's basically kind of a, a slightly mutated um, version of flood irrigation um, because it's pockets of flood irrigation. And these are fed by um, typically, you know, kind of historically in New Mexico fed by um, something called an acequia, which is actually an irrigation ditch. Um, and, you know, and these are typically fed off of rivers. Um, the ones actually in the San Fidel area are fed off of Mount Taylor, um, off of seven springs that are all named for animals. Um, they're all Spanish names like Tecolote, which is an owl, also a bear, Culebra, which is a snake. So, and I can't remember all of them right now, but, but there's, all, there's all these histories and all of these stories that come from this place. Um, and, you know, part of our goal is and we've got a lot of goals, you know, I think, you know, the great thing about the first suppers is that it, it helps us kind of hone in, home in and really, you know, focus, right. To, to try and, you know, figure out what's the best thing we can do right now. Um, Cause there's really so many things that need to be done and so many things that should be done. So, um, that's, so Andrea, so yeah. what would you say? needs to be done, what should be done, and how, what does this look like, the first suppers in this project? If you could describe some of it, how, how it unfolds, how you're creating it in collaboration um, with the community, with Antonio Trujillo, with Sandra, with students, etc. Like what, what, what is this looking like? And let's also look at how water is connecting this project and your other projects. Yeah. Um, well, the, the water at the school in particularly, and it's Sandra's been in, involved in informing me, which is wonderful um, in terms of prioritizing the needs um, is we need more reliable water to really get more vigorous farming on the school site. We have 22 acres a lot of it's unused, a lot of it's in disrepair, especially the old adobe outbuildings, which could be cider presses. There's so many great ideas that Antonio has for usage, but it's like, where do you start? Which It can be overwhelming. And um, the first suppers kind of are a, a snapshot in time at the time of the event of what the needs of the community are. So we're uh, organizing for the third one, May 15th. It's during the blessing of the Asequias. So they go up into the Mount Taylor. And um, I think it'll be amazing to be part of that. As And then the food gathering will uh, provoke a lot of conversation and, and we'll be able to hear at the table what could the concerns are of people from the Hispanic population most of the students at the school are from pre-K to eighth grade or from Acoma Laguna. And yeah, certainly people from grants and the Anglo community that is more from the mining tradition and the ranching tradition um, and Cubero. And there's amazing kind of backwater Hispanic communities that have been there for hundreds of years off of Spanish land grants. And, and New Mexico is unique in the sense that it has a different kind of water usage, the Asequia system 
where in the river valley in for the Delaware, we have abundant water. So there's it's a huge contrast. But there's similar concerns in terms of extractive industries. So I think that's really, mm. and there are also rural communities where the mining industries just think that we're so depressed economically. There's so few jobs that we're willing to kind of sell our souls to the extractive economy instead of banding together as a community and finding solutions on our own. And, and that's really, I think, the commonality between the Sky Dog Supper Clubs and the First Supper Gatherings is, is an empowerment and catalyst for, for positive change. I think that's a beautiful way of putting it because that's really, you know, I mean, that that's really what we want to mm. do. Like we want to, we want to talk, we, we want to talk to people, but mostly we want to get people to talk. Um, and that's, that's been challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's sometimes there's, there's people who love to talk and then there's people who don't talk at all. And, and I think that we've kind of, you know, landed in a community where people aren't as open. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, it's bridging that is, has been a real challenge. Right. Um, and there's certainly reasons. Somewhere. Certainly gone. Somewhere. Yeah. I mean, I was, yeah. you know, every time I go back, I was back in May, um, starting to rekindle mm-hmm. the first site. It's a lot of work, you know, but once we all got vaccinated, then it was like, oh, good, I can yeah. go out and kind <laughs> of like sit in a table next to you. Right. <laughs> I can dip my toe in the water again. And, um, and of course, you know, at Acoma Laguna, even back in May, the, the, everything was barricaded, you know, it was really intense. Um, because of the COVID outbreaks were much more severe on the reservations. And, and, uh, and Andrea, has COVID, and as, as you're sharing with us what's been happening on the reservations, has that affected the project at all? What has been uncovered uh, during this time? Um, I think, if anything, I think it's made people reflect and, and concentrate more intensively. Um, and I think the school has gotten more donations um, they had like the convent had just these plastic kind of Walmart tables. And when I was staying there, I have a place to stay at the convent, luckily. And uh, now there was really nice like wood furniture. It felt really cozy. And somebody just donated all of this and just wanted a letter for a, a tax write off. And so I think the giving and people are more generous because they have more time to think about what's really important. So in some ways, I think it's been positive. Yeah. Um, on the- um, but, you know, of course, uh, the death and, and all of that stuff is is nothing to be desired. Right. And how and, do you deal with being outsiders, right? Coming in culturally, yeah. <laughs> being outsiders. And I know, Andrea, you mentioned your own family lineage, which is connected to mm-hmm. this region. But, um, you know, to to navigate those complexities. I'll interject a little bit here, but I, I believe if I remember correctly, um, and Andrea, you, you were also raised Catholic. Is that, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so we were both raised Catholic. <laughs> um, and, and this is, of course, this has nothing to do with the, you know, with the native American community, but it, but it does have to do with the school, which is, you know, which is a mission school. Um, and, you know, we're, we're both like, you know, I hate to say it, but recovering Catholics. Um, and <laughs> and it, it puts us into a kind of some funny situations with donors um, and being at donor mm-hmm. events. Um, but the, um, but Antonio Trujillo, who's a former priest, actually, long, long story, but um, good story, actually. Another, another, another well, city, talk. you know, it's yeah. amazing where he was, where yeah. he was practicing. But, um, you know, he could care less. Like it's, it's incredibly like for him, good people are good people that it's irrelevant where you come from, what religion you are, what color you are, what, I mean, it, it just, it's completely irrelevant. And I think that that's, you know, it's, that's what makes him, you know, such a great catalyst for everything. Yeah. Thank Uh, you, Sandra. And Andrea, how would you respond to that? I agree completely with what Sandra's saying. And, um, and additionally, um, I think having the experience being the priest at Acoma Laguna and um, and then being, you know, he got married and started a, a Guadalupe Vineyards and, you know, he's part of the civilian population now as the principal. He has insights into the community that Sandra and I could never have access no. to. And he's just an incredible bridge for us to be able to do the things. And most people, like when I come back up to Santa Fe here, they just can't believe that we're doing this work, you know, <laughs> because it's, this is a, a mission school that's in a Spanish land grant hamlet, San Fidel. 
we have the capacity to work on levels through the school that we could never do anywhere else. Um, and that's a blessing. So, and I think that's why the project has been going for seven years and um, indefinitely, as far yeah. as I can see, you know, no, absolutely. And hopefully. Well, yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, so we just have a few more minutes. So I just wondered what you'd like to share with us before our conversation concludes. Well, I, one of the things, what I was just going to say is, you know, I, I like what, what, um, what was just said about this being a project that, you know, just continue. Um, but I think that, you know, I think that we're both in a position right now where we have more time to devote to it. And then the, you know, and Antonio has more support at the school as well. So, you know, I hope that we can come to some conclusions and actually get, get you know, get some monies via grants for the school to actually start to kind of to take kind of a big leap forward. Um, and what and does that not, leap look like? What do you that is see exactly? <laughs> well, I think, you know, I mean, what next, needs to happen? Yeah, the next two first up, uh, there's going to be a May and then an October. So now they want to do two, which is great. Um, and in the spring, we're planning on working on mapping the Asequias and doing a mapping project. And historic cornfields. And historic ancestral yep. cornfields. Yep. So we're like, okay, where were they growing food before the mining industries came in and obliterated everything? And, and then remembering where that sustainability used to exist so that it, everyone can visualize it happening again, you know. Because right now it doesn't seem possible because you can't see it. Right. Like, There's no memory there. Yeah. But there is memory in the land, right. you know, and there is technology where we can use you know, ways to find where those footprints are. And so that's where I'm really excited on top of getting the garden going again and working with the kids. And they're going to make ceramic plates, I think, for the next first supper. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know what we're going to do for the harvest one, but, um, you know, just uh, really getting in there and, and, and seeing um, what the visualization can guide into the future through remembering the past. So a kind of collective mm -hmm. visioning, right? So it's exactly so the and healing, right? There's and, healing. Yeah. Absolutely. And healing. A lot of healing. Yeah. So Thank that's you. kind of where it's at. Yeah. And Thank if you. anyone wants more information, I've got the website here for the school. If anyone wants to check out the mission school, um, it's stjosephmissionschool.com, not org. There must have been another one that was a .org. <laughs> um, and uh, go there, and they have a giving page if anybody's really excited about helping out. And, um, and I'm curious, you know, what the next steps will be after we have this May 15th event. and. Um, can keep you posted. Oh, that would be, that would be great. Thank, thank you both so much. I've been speaking with Andrea Reynosa and Sandra Donner uh, about their collaboration, about Andrea Reynosa's First Suppers project. And to find out more about Andrea, you can go to andreareynosa.com and Sandra Donner, rootstudio.design. Thank you so much, Andrea and Sandra. Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You're so welcome. From the kitchen table out on the road, I'm Sabrina Artell. Thanks for joining me for Sabrina Artell's Trailer Talk. The music for the show, Patti Smith, People Have the Power. Trailer Talk is produced by Sabrina Artell. For more information, please visit trailertalk.net. Special thanks to WJFF Radio Catskill and the numerous people who have donated their time, resources, and conversations to make Trailer Talk possible. Thank you all who joined me in these conversations. I'm Sabrina Artel. Safe travels. I'm Manoush Zamarodi from NPR, and you are part of a community of public radio listeners. You hear the same stories and voices with your hearts beating as one. And when you give, you don't donate to this station alone either. It's your donation and the ones of so many others who hear what you do and feel inspired to support this NPR station. So listen to your heart. Here's how to give. Give now at WJFFradio.org. I'm Kusar Grace KG right here in the place to be. I want to say happy Kwanzaa, happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas, and peace and blessings for the new year. I want to continue to express that safety that everybody should be concerned with 
wearing your mask, social distancing, and just practicing safety as a whole. Have a healthy and safe New Year, all right? Your NPR station for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Radio Catskill, keeping you connected. Welcome to Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. I'll bring you all kinds of stories from all kinds of people. Whether it's a live public conversation and we're speaking from the kitchen table of my 1965 Beeline travel trailer, from the studios or on the streets, please sit back and enjoy the conversation right here this time every week. I'm Sabrina. This is Trailer Talk. I want to invite you all to gather around this virtual kitchen table for my conversation with Brenda Selden. Brenda is a channeler. She works with the Akashic Records, Animal Communication, and Ritualized Ceremony. And these readings, she states, offer messages of guidance and healing energies to the people she works with. Now, full disclosure, right before we began recording, Brenda opened up a healing circle for me. Wasn't feeling well. And I must say, I feel better. Also, it's my birthday when we're speaking. And this leads me to invite Brenda to share with us what are these invisible for many of us, unknown for many of us, esoteric worlds that you are delving into that you actually are making contact with. How did this begin for you? Hi, Sabrina. First of all, happy birthday. Didn't know it was your birthday today. So wish you many blessings on this day for you. And uh, yeah, for me, I can't say that it started in childhood. Many people will say that. Actually, for me, it started more in the 90s. I was living in New York City and I actually was a wildlife rehabilitator and I had a center, wildlife rehab center. And when I was working with the wildlife, I used a lot of holistic alternative treatments for the animals, mostly homeopathy. And in working with the animals, suddenly what was happening with them, how they were feeling, what was wrong with them would just, would just, just kind of be a sense of knowing. And then I would find the right remedy and just really work well with the animals, have a lot of successes. And at that time also was the first time that I consciously channeled for a friend I had a friend who had been suffering from severe migraines for a number of months, and she was very sensitive to conventional medicine, even aspirin made her sick. So she was going from practitioner to practitioner and just having brunch with her and another friend. The name of the homeopathic remedy that eventually would help her a great deal just was spoken to me in my mind. It was a voice that wasn't mine. And it just came in and said the name of the remedy three times. And because she was a close friend, I said to her, hey, I just got the name of the remedy said to me clearly three times. I think this is for you. And because with homeopathy, it's a very safe form of of energy medicine that she was able to try it. And she could see that that it helped her, it helped her a lot. And eventually she found a chiropractor and um she got better. She got better within a few months when she had been suffering for at least three, four nonstop. So Brenda, some people might hear that voice, might get those messages and discard it or think that there's something wrong with them, that this is not a message they should relay, or even if they did, that it wouldn't necessarily have any uh, truth attached to it. So what made you different? You're also talking about you entered this world as a wildlife rehabber and in communication with wild creatures, with non-human animals. And now you're also talking about homeopathy and those are plants. So that's a whole other realm as well that, of course, there are many traditions around both for ritual, for finding meaning, for connecting humanity in a more holistic kind of way, let's say. Correct. Growing up in New York City, there was always a part of me that knew that I belonged in the countryside. I belonged 
in nature. I jokingly always say, I grew up surrounded by 8 million people, but I just wanted to be surrounded by 8 million trees. So, <laughs> and, you, and you got that wish because you live in the Delaware River Valley region of upstate New York. Absolutely. And I'm so grateful. And when these voices come in, um, you have to experience it. And by the way, I do teach workshops and I do teach channeling and, and other things. And there is a difference. There is a difference. For instance, the voice that I heard from my friend sounded more like a male voice. And it just popped into my head over suddenly because I was in the middle of a conversation. The first experience that I had, I think you mentioned that I'm also an animal communicator. That's how actually I yes. started. Because after I had to close my wildlife rehab center, which, by the way, was in a building in midtown Manhattan, if you can believe it. Incredible. That's a long story in itself. Yes. Yeah. God bless me with the time to help animals for five and a half years until I lost the space. But I I had um, signed up to do my first animal communication workshop. I had read a book about it because I couldn't work physically with animals anymore. And I thought this would be a good bridge to still working with animals in another capacity and human beings. So at one point I had a large property in Kachekton and this beautiful rock ledge, I was doing a meditation and I opened my eyes and there's beautiful buck like 50 feet in front of me. And I just started to talk out loud because it used to be a hunting club. And I said to the buck, you're safe. This is your home. I just want to share it with you. You're, you know, and I said a couple more things. But when I was done speaking, the buck just nodded his head up and down three times and walked away. And that was my first community. That was my first conscious communication. And then when I went to do the workshop, it just came really naturally. I think my heart is always connected to nature, to the animals, to the plants. And they're all living beings and we can communicate with them. And the truth of the matter is that once you're aware that everything is alive, it really Actually, it really um, bestows a large responsibility on oneself because then you can't just willy-nilly do things in nature, like just decide, I want to cut down these 23, these 20 trees because I want a better view, or I want to kill all these ants because they're just bothering me as they're crossing the floor. You know, they're all living beings that can communicate with you. And actually, the more you communicate with them, the stronger relationship you create to nature, and then you can actually work with them. I've had like at least three instances. And one of them was with a friend where I actually asked the ants to please leave so that something wouldn't be done to force them to leave their bodies. That's the way I put it for the animals. See, there you go. There's your pup agreeing. Yep, yep, yep. Yes. <laughs> I think that is a positive synchronistic sign. And it worked, you know, and it worked with, with this person that I knew for the ants. I just said, listen, it worked for me. I don't know if I can make it work for you. And I asked. And they were gone after being there for like a week and a half in an apartment in New York City. She ran a daycare. So, you know, couldn't have that. So. Right. So that's fascinating. So is your background a spiritual or religious one? Do you have some sort of training that strengthened your ability? For instance, you mentioned meditation, but to be able to communicate in such a way to actually see a positive result. You know what? Everybody has that gift. We're all meant to be interconnected. You know, the only the only sentient beings on this planet that don't automatically telepathically communicate are modern human beings. At one point, we decided, hey, let's write, let's talk, and let's just box away this ability. But we're meant to be all interconnected and be and just be. Uh, you know, I think of every being on this planet as like we're all family. We're all part of the greater collective. And actually, everybody has disability. So when I teach people, you know, really all I, especially with children, and when I work with children when they're young, you know, they're under like five years old, you know, by the time a kid reaches four or five, they're like, know-it-alls. I know this, I know that, you know, it's really cute. But from like four under, you can like say to them, there's my dog. Can you ask him if he likes his treats? They'll go over, they'll ask. And the, the reply they give me will totally make sense. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? But, but then as we get into the world of adults, it's like they need a teacher to show them, to give them permission, basically. But you've already got it. So once you practice, you can see for yourself. And 
the one way that I show people that they can do it is that in my workshops, I pair people up with people they don't know. So that you're working with the other person's animal, communicating with them, and they're working with yours. So whatever comes to your mind, you have to say, because you don't know anything about the other person. And then you'll see how much you got right. And then you'll be like, oh, okay, I can do this. And then you can just move forward with just getting better at it. So Brenda, so you're talking about communicating with animals and wild things that are alive. So you also channel and you also communicate with those that have passed. So what's the difference? And how do you explain that to people without them saying, what? How could that possibly be real? So when people think about people that work with those that have passed on, they're called mediums. And I'm not strictly um, a medium. So I work mainly in the Akashic Records. And the Akashic Records are, uh, in a simple form, kind of think about it as an interdimensional energy library. Mm-hmm. And everybody has their book of life. And their book of life is includes all their past lives, includes their the blueprint for their spiritual path, their spiritual gifts, who their guides are, their soul contracts, soul connections. So when people ask me to connect to a loved one, or sometimes in a reading, a loved one or an ancestor will come in, then for me, it's very specifically... Uh, I do communicate with that person, but also what comes in is what is the connection between that loved one and you in this lifetime, maybe past life or ancestral energies or so that layer just comes in as well, because that's how it works for me. Mm -hmm. So the Akashic records, as you just described, I think you said they're an interdimensional energetic library. Energy library. Yeah, think about it. Energy library. So that, that the Akashic records are for human beings? No, it's for everything, really. So that's like the easiest definition when people Mm -hmm. come to me and ask to work with me and ask to get a reading. The reality is that the Akashic records are like the fabric of everything that exists. And there's a record. So really, um, not only do they help me to connect to... For instance, if I ever work with you, then I would connect to your guides and the records with your permission and work with you with whatever you would like, you know, whatever you need insight on. But also, um, they also allow me to connect to places. So places have spirits in and of themselves. Um, I studied shamanism in the 90s and I've worked very connected to the land and to animals and you connect to the land spirits. You connect not only to the land spirits, but to the the ancestors of the land, the people that lived on it. And then you can also connect to other dimensions, to other um, to other places outside of Earth, outside of our galaxy. It's it can take you anywhere and everywhere and connect you to anything and anyone. It's just amazing. It's so broad. So it seems like an extraordinary ride, right? This like kind of um, expansive adventure into a deeper connectedness and knowingness. What have you learned in your own practice, in your own study as an animal communicator and also an Akashic Records channeler? What have you learned? I mean, does it, does it help you personally? I've, I've sometimes heard from people who do what you do that are healers in this kind of way that they can't often do it for themselves or kind of have, I don't know. So I'm just curious in your case. Actually, uh, when I work in the Akashic Records, I work with them for myself as well. But even when I work with somebody else. So one of the differences when someone says somebody is psychic, sometimes a psychic would just pick up information about you. But for instance, let's just say, and I'm using you as an example, I'm not right now, unless I'm working with somebody, get permission, I'm making this up about Sabrina. So I just want to let the audience know. This is a fiction, everyone listening. Right. But this is all good. It's a good example. So let's just say that Archangel Michael worked strongly with you, you know, is around you and helps you. You may be consciously aware of it or not. So I wouldn't pick up just the name Archangel Michael or an image of it. 
literally I would feel his presence. I would see him and I would feel his presence. And if he had a message for you, I would be receiving that message directly from him. So for instance, there are people that have different practices, people that are that are either what we know of as, uh, you know, the Christian Judeo, you know, path. So I might get a message from uh, Mother Mary or people who I remember this one person who uh, was a practitioner of Yoruba and the beautiful ocean goddess just came to me and I could feel her power. I could feel what a strong what a strong deity she was and what it would be like to work with her and how she demanded so much. And you better really, if you make a promise or you better keep it or keep in trouble. <laughs> and so it's like stepping into somebody's spiritual world momentarily and really just learning so much. And have you come across those people who, let's say a friend or the family member says, I, I know you don't believe in these things, but please just do this because we all struggle. We all are seeking answers. And certainly I'm thinking because today is my birthday, like also birthdays, like the time of birth is a time of reflection, of seeking answers, perhaps, or inquiring about our paths, right? Why we were born, perhaps, or where we're going. So I'm wondering about those people that come to you that they're going to take that, that leap with you. Like what have been your experiences been? So um, I used to do a lot of fairs. So a lot of uh, metaphysical fairs for a long time. And sometimes people come to you either because somebody else brings them to you. Like I brought my friend. I want her to have a reading with you. <laughs> right. Yeah. But this person is at a fair and just wants to try it. And you know what? Not everybody is receptive to it, but the higher purpose, what I've come to realize is maybe all I've done is plant a seed that's supposed to grow at another time. So sometimes the messages that come through. Um, okay, so <laughs> I had a client. So so what I see my gift as being is helping that person, helping their soul evolve to where they want to go. You know, if they want to overcome certain pattern that keeps repeating or they feel blocked or they have um, sometimes people come to me, they they want to find a spirit, spiritual way to work with their depression. You know, so mm -hmm. I might be something that can show them something from another aspect that may help. Mm -hmm. But sometimes um, people just may not like what they hear you know, and it takes a while. And sometimes I get people, you know, contacting me back and saying, you know what, I got mad at you at that time, but you were really right. I have a client who jokingly said to me, you take me where I need to go, kicking and screaming. <laughs> because I really, I see the person's highest potential. Mm -hmm. And I just, I see myself as somebody that's there by their side in the trenches, helping them to reach it. So I'm really there with them. For me, it's not just, um, it's really to help them change their lives for the better, if that's at all within my power, through helping them receive the messages that are for them from their guides and then being their support. Brenda, thank you so much for sharing this. So as you described going into the Akashic Records, the interdimensional energy library, you also said they're the fabric of everything that exists. This must be something that keeps expanding for you as your own knowledge, as a communicator and a reader evolves. So are you able to share some of how your own understanding has expanded? Oh, definitely. Um, so the hardest time in my life for me was four and a half years ago when my husband, Ronnie passed away. I'm a widow. Hmm. And so before then I've had many years of working with the experience of death, whether it was people's pets or again, people, um, their loved ones. Um, I've even in the last five years, I've, it just happened kind of organically where people have loved ones and not anybody from COVID, but who were very sick, very ill in the hospital. 
and they just wanted to have a sense how their loved ones were doing, what they needed, what, and they had their personal questions. And so that person in the hospital wasn't able to communicate. They might've been really sick or even in one case, almost in a coma. Mm-hmm. So that I was working with their higher self. And then in some cases, the person passed on. So not only did I know them from when they were alive, but then I just felt like I I, I traveled the whole road of life to in the, the in between to the other side. And with my husband, um, the day he passed away, he was at home. And um, when I got home, uh, he had passed away of a heart attack. And in that moment, like I think any human being who whose loved one who goes who finds a loved one deceased, you you know, I'm sorry. Um somebody came and was doing CPR on him. And while they were doing it, I was asking, I I was speaking to my husband. I just opened up the records and I asked and I just said, please, is there any way you can come back? I love you. I really need you. And then I felt it. I saw him in my mind's eye and I felt him near his body. And I could feel that his body was closed off. Like there was no entryway. I could feel it. And I knew he couldn't. But then I had to, I had to travel to the hospital because that's where they took him. And he was in the car beside me speaking to me. And then I've had, then I had other signs afterwards where, where, um, where songs, a singer, Brenda Lee, I think from the fifties and sixties, I remember going to his memorial and just saying to him, I don't know if I can do this. You have to be by my side, you know, feel him. And I just parked and I just turned on the radio and the song, You Can Depend On Me, Brenda Lee was playing. But one of the things that it helped me, and it's not so much the signs, it's just I've worked so much with the spirits of those that have passed on. And I'm sad that I'm no longer with them, but I understand. Well, also what you're sharing, and thank you for sharing this about the death of your husband four and a half years ago, Ronnie, is that it doesn't, your knowledge, your teachings, your ability to, uh, your ability as a communicator doesn't erase grief. It doesn't erase the feeling of pain or letting go of life, of being in the physical body. So I appreciate you sharing that because I think some people perhaps just gloss over that, but you're actually acknowledging that it doesn't make that easier, but you also have a respect and a knowledge of, of one's path of one's destiny, let's say, right? That's what I'm hearing you say. No, exactly, exactly. I started to learn that from animals when I was a wildlife rehabilitator, um, especially wild animals. If, for instance, like a bird with a broken wing, they'll keep going, trying to find food until they can't. And they just stop and wait for death to come or, or, or an animal loses a limb or a wing. And it's just, you just know they're not saying, um, Where's my wing? Oh, my God, why am I without my wing? And I just really learned to that it's okay that you just keep going in life until you can. And there's a dignity to knowing when you can't anymore. So it's a dignity you're talking about because there's still pain. There's still grief, but it's about a dignity. Dignity And also, yeah, yeah. That's just knowledge. Exactly. And you can be bereaved and you can be in the middle of grief. And I was in the middle of a, of a grief storm. I mean, you know my beloved husband, but there was a part of me that still at the same time understood it, which sometimes um, people are at different part, you know, different points in the road yes. where that part they just fight against and mm-hmm. they don't want to, you know, and that just makes the whole process harder. But, but, you know, all of us go through it and eventually all of us, if we allow you know, this is what I suggest, whatever you're feeling, allow yourself to feel it because otherwise you're pushing it back in. And I've always said to people, you cry and you scream and you do what you need to do. And when you're done, it'll be done. And you won't have to return to that, to that exact point. Right. 
Thank and you it's honoring you. that. Yeah. It's honoring the life. Exactly. Uh, the life. And also it's honoring also your process in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Brenda, I'm wondering if there's anything else you'd like to share with us. Sure. Um, so the other thing, so like you said, the records are very expansive and take you out there. And uh, people that know me or people that know my website might know this about me. But um, in 2013, I was contacted by extraterrestrial beings. They called themselves the Travelers. And in 2017, I began to document them with nightly photographs and videos. And these extraterrestrial beings have come here to help us, to help humanity. They said we're on the verge of leaving this planet, as in the verge of we're beginning to, you know, to to look to look off planet for the future of humanity, to include so, the creation of home worlds. Okay, and, so let me yes. jump in here because I know yes. some people listening might be like, okay, I, I was with her up to that moment. Right. So just you know, because we are coming to the end of sure. this conversation and we'll continue but to have them right for but, a part two interview. <laughs> well, cliffhanger, but also so people don't say, whoa, wait a minute. Now that's yeah. too much for me. So is there just something that you can share with those listening? Yeah, I would say look at the blog on my website. Look at my Facebook page, The Travelers from the Stars. I have Instagram too, the same name, The Travelers from the Stars. And you will see their unedited photographs and videos that I have taken on my cell phone camera. And I also channeled them. The thing is, we're not alone. Right. So how do you explain this for our listeners? Some who may be on board with this idea of extraterrestrial communication. Others just say, oh, no, uh uh-uh, no way. But how can you translate this for someone listening? And for me, about how this connects to this concept of the energies that we are all part of. Sure, we're all interconnected, not just on this planet, but in the universe. And also, this universe exists in this dimension. You know, uh, you have the quantum physicists that talk about string theory and multiple parallel worlds. So, you know, honestly, it exists. Just to think that we're the only living beings that is what I think is a bit crazy considering how vast. What I'm saying is that when you open yourself up to the universe, there's so much more than what you know that exists out there. Thank you so much. And that's very reassuring. Thank you so much, Brenda, for joining me. Thank you very much. Thank you. I love being here. Oh, it's so wonderful. I've been speaking with Brenda Selden. She is an animal communicator and also an Akashic Records channeler. To find out more about Brenda, please visit thehealingenergies.com and you can find out so much more about some of the things that Brenda and I were speaking about. Thank you. From the kitchen table out on the road, I'm Sabrina Artell. Thanks for joining me for Sabrina Artell's Trailer Talk. The music for the show, Patti Smith, People Have the Power. Trailer Talk is produced by Sabrina Artell. For more information, please visit TrailerTalk.net. Special thanks to WJFF Radio Catskill and the numerous people who have donated their time, resources, and conversations to make Trailer Talk possible. Thank you all who joined me in these conversations. I'm Sabrina Artell. Safe travels. This Week in This American Life. The laws of physics tell us that the simplest explanation is usually the right one. So maybe Davy should not have believed that his dark skin was dark Italian, like his family always told him. Once he brought home a black friend. And he stops dead in his tracks and he's like, what them white girls doing in your house? And I was like, uh, those are my sisters. And he's like, oh man. The laws of family physics this week. Saturday at 6 on Radio Catskill. You're listening to Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. WJFF Jeffersonville. On air, online, on your smartphone. Just download the WJFF app.
Support comes from the Law Office of John Ferrara in Monticello, providing legal services in the areas of matrimonial and family law and criminal defense. John.Ferrara557 at gmail.com. Support comes from the Vintage House on Main Street, Jeffersonville, featuring eclectic furnishings, clothing, antiques, records, and books in a charming 19th century house. VintageHouseJVille.com and on Instagram at VintageHouseJVille.